and good evening, everybody. Welcome to our primetime podcast here at Calvary Baptist Church in Gaylord, Michigan. Today is March 28th. It is Palm Sunday in the year 2021, and we are continuing this series of podcast messages. We started it the first of the year, and this is going to carry us uh, well into May. And it's a series of messages that is focused a lot on history because we want to understand why we believe what we believe. Many of you have shared with me that you've heard so many teachings in here that you weren't necessarily familiar with, and you're wrestling with trying to, to synchronize the understanding that you were always taught. And I want to suggest to you that what you were taught probably wasn't wrong as much as that there were certain things that were omitted, probably because the pastor made the decision, and perhaps very correctly, that at the time that wasn't going to be helpful to you. And In fact, a common statement that I do hear people say is that when you give us so much information about the background, you might cause confusion. I do have a response to that, though, and that is that in order to grow in our faith and in our biblical understanding, we have to recognize that since the last of the books of the Bible was put to paper, well, it has been preserved for us, divinely preserved, as well as was originally divinely inspired. Our understanding of it has somewhat changed in ways that it shouldn't have, of course. And then there's been a proper understanding that has been regained and that's one of the things the Protestant Reformation was supposed to be all about. But in the last few hundred years here in America, the lens that we view Scripture through becomes a uniquely American lens. And sometimes it colors or tints our understanding of things. We've spent a fair amount of time talking through the development of things since the time of Christ, including... Um, the split between the East and the West in the year 1054, and then the beginning of the Protestant Reformation in 1517, and some of those key figures that we've talked through. Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, John Knox, Jacobus Arminius, and then, of course, King Henry VIII in England, and leading the beginnings of an English Reformation, at least in terms of breaking away from the Catholic Church. And then after the Church of England was established for a period of time, it needed Reformation. And along comes John Wesley. And all of those individuals, their students, their congregants, their individuals who sat under their teaching for years, they grew up and had children, and those people had children. And many of them eventually ended up coming here to the New World, to the United States. And America historically has been something of a melting pot of cultures, and so you end up with some uniquely American understandings of Christianity, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, and yet it's important that we understand when those understandings have wandered off course and where they've gotten things right. Now, last week, we looked at this from the lens of Baptists in America, particularly in the time frame leading up to our Declaration of Independence and then on in the couple of decades following that. I had shared with you that many of those revival movements in the 1800s here in America had a heavy emphasis of what was the Methodist movement. And the Baptist pastors kind of latched onto it 
because they saw the Holy Spirit moving. Well, now we're going to come to the early 20th century, and we're going to talk about something that many of us just are not all that familiar with, and we need to have some understanding of it that is a proper understanding so we don't misrepresent those who come from this movement that are our fellow brothers and sisters. And I'm speaking of the Pentecostal and charismatic movement. This emphasizes a direct experience of God through what they call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The term Pentecostal, it comes from the biblical term Pentecost, the event that speaks of the descent of the Holy Spirit upon the followers of Jesus Christ after Jesus ascended back to heaven. In Greek, by the way, it's, it's the name for the Jewish Feast of Weeks, is what it's known as. Now, like many other forms of evangelical, conservative, Protestant Christianity, Pentecostalism believes that the Bible is inerrant, and they believe that there is a necessity of a conversion and accepting of Christ as a personal Lord and Savior. But it is distinguished by a belief in what it refers to as baptism in the Holy Spirit, which enables a Christian believer to live a spirit-filled and empowered life. And that phrase probably should have quotation marks around it. A spirit-filled and empowered life. This empowerment includes the use of special gifts, such as divine healing, speaking in tongues, two other defining characteristics of the Pentecostal movement. And because of their commitment to biblical authority and spiritual gifts and miracles, Pentecostals tend to see their movement as reflecting the kind of spiritual power and teachings that were found in the age of the apostles there in that first century. And for this reason, some Pentecostals will even use a term. They'll refer to them as apostolic or full gospel to describe their movement. Now, here in America, this really began in the early 20th century. And these were people who were, let's call them radical followers of what was the holiness movement, who were energized by the revival movements of the 1800s, the circuit-riding preachers of the sawdust trail, as they were often called, they believed that there was an absolutely imminent second coming of Christ. We certainly believe it is imminent in God's timeline, but we don't go and put times on it. It could be before you finish listening to this podcast, and it could be many, many years. But the Pentecostals believed that it was very imminent, and believing they were living in the end times, they expected that God would spiritually renew the church and would bring to pass the restoration of special gifts that had ceased for years. In other words, our view is those special gifts, largely speaking, ceased after the age of the apostles. Pentecostals believe that they have been restored because we're in the end times. Now, in 1900, there was a, a man, whose name was Charles Parnham, he was an American evangelist and he was a faith healer and began teaching that speaking in tongues was the biblical evidence of baptism by the Holy Spirit. And along with another man, William Seymour, and he was a Wesleyan holiness preacher, part of the Methodist movement, he taught that this was a third work of, of grace. And in Southern California, there was an event that's called the Azusa Street Revival. And it was founded and it was led by Mr. Seymour 
in Los Angeles, and it resulted in the growth of the Pentecostal movement throughout not just the United States, but the rest of the world. An early dispute that happened within the Pentecostal movement, because like Baptists, they certainly have had their divisions and their controversies. One of those divisions was a challenge to the doctrine of the Trinity. And we'll talk about that just a little bit later. Now today, there are um, 700 denominations and independent churches. But Pentecostalism is very highly decentralized. There is no central authority. But many are affiliated with what is called the Pentecostal World Fellowship. Uh, the best estimates are 279 million classic Pentecostals worldwide, worldwide, and the movement is growing in parts of the world. My last information said that this was the fastest growing element of Christianity. Here in the United States, the largest Pentecostal denomination are the Assemblies of God. And here in Gaylord, the church that uh, is called the Hope, or Mount Hope Church was its was its formal name, uh, located across the street from E Free Church on the east end of town. Their pastor, Norm Oberlin, somebody I would consider a friend and a fellow believer. He's one of the guys that I may go to from time to time when I'm just looking for some practical advice on pastoral work and just balancing the challenges that that brings you with your own personal life. He's an experienced pastor who also is a state police chaplain for Michigan. Uh, I like Norm, and I think his people like Norm. Uh, good man. Now, let's talk a little bit about uh, those early days, the holiness movements. I had mentioned the names Charles Fox um, and William Seymour. A little bit of background with them. They were piggybacking on some of the revival movements that had happened in the decades previous, including the revival movements of a man pretty familiar to Baptists, D.L. Moody. Famous Moody Church in Chicago is named after him. But one of the things about the Pentecostal movement is that it particularly was attractive to many of the black churches. I mean, if you were part of, of a group of people who for generations has been an oppressed people, and then now you begin to believe that you are personally receiving revelation from God, that the time of liberation has come. I hope you can, uh, you can accept that this was very real to those people. And so it was very popular within the civil rights movement. Those blacks who were Baptist adopted some elements of this, and so you end up with something that I've used the term Bapticostal. They have Baptist theology, but there's a very heavy emphasis on emotions, not necessarily to the point of speaking in tongues in the case of Baptist churches, but a very heavy emphasis on emotions. And certainly we shouldn't have a, a faith that is a, a book faith and is a very dry, heady sort of faith. It needs to be one of the heart. But the more that our emotions drive things, the more we have the potential to see what we want to see. So there's always a question of a, of a happy balance. Now let's talk a little bit about some of those early controversies and this idea of 
sanctification through the lens that would have been promoted by John Wesley, we talked about a couple of weeks ago. This holiness movement of the 1800s, entire sanctification, the belief that in this life spiritual perfection was possible. One of the, uh, the challenges with that is that by its very nature, Pentecostals are Arminians. And by that, I mean there's a heavy emphasis on man's free will and a belief that it is possible to sin sufficiently that you can lose your salvation and then it has to be regained. Uh, that's one of the areas in which we would differ from them. We would differ from them in the idea that um, we don't accept that tongues and sign gifts are a current gift of the Spirit. I think most of us would have a little asterisk by that statement. We would say that they're not normative, and they're not uh, the only measure or the sign of somebody who is a true believer. I certainly believe that if God in his wisdom needed to use that in a remote location and remote place in order to spread the gospel because there was no common language between a missionary and the people he was trying to reach. I don't question that God could choose to do that. But we don't believe that those are normative sign gifts. But people who are from the Pentecostal movement, including our brothers and sisters at the Assemblies of God, would differ with us on that. And so on that issue, we would simply have to say, we disagree with you. But we believe that their faith is in Jesus Christ and they are saved by his grace just as we are. Another area where we would have a disagreement with them is that women have always played a major role in the Pentecostal movement. And so, among other things, they do ordain women as, as ministers you know, in preaching roles. They aren't the only denomination that does, but in terms of theology, they're probably the most conservative division of Christianity that ordains women. Most of the others that ordain women are more liberal denominations. Now let's talk about things in our current age here. Let's say from 1960 to the present. Most of us who are not Pentecostal, we experience um, baptism as a public profession by immersion. Some of us when we were children were baptized, and then when we became uh, believers and we made a profession of faith, we part participated in believer's baptism by immersion. I'm, I'm one of those that as, a, as an infant, my parents had me sprinkled by our Lutheran minister. And uh, in a future podcast, we're going to focus just on baptism to try and understand, okay, those who baptize infants, what are the different understandings of what's happening there? What's our understanding of what's really happening? And what does the Bible really say? So that's a future portion of this podcast series. But the 1960s was seeing this pattern that developed where large numbers of Christians from mainline churches even were claiming that they had been baptized by the Holy Spirit. And so there was something that was broader than just the Pentecostal denomination. It was the charismatic renewal. It even took place within the Catholic Church. And elements of that certainly took place within the Methodist movement and within Baptists. It was more likely to happen in churches that were less structured, that didn't have a hierarchy that governed everything. That's why it's all the more amazing that it happened within the Roman Catholic Church. 
as I had mentioned, the fastest growing element of Christianity in the world today for the last probably 20 years has been charismatic and Pentecostal Christianity. Now you might say, what's the difference between a charismatic and a Pentecostal? Well, Pentecostal really is that older, now century or so old movement in which demonstrating the sign gifts, speaking in tongues and the gift of healings and those aspects were things that were the, the proof of one's salvation. That until you've developed that, you're almost on a probationary salvation. Whereas those who are charismatic, and this would include, generally speaking, our friends in the Assemblies of God churches, would say you may speak in tongues. A Pentecostal would say you must speak in tongues. So that, that's a broad statement. And I'm guessing our Pentecostal friends would cringe a little bit at saying that's way too black and white, and that's probably true, but I think it gives you at least some idea. Now, let's talk a little bit about some of the core beliefs. Pentecostalism is an evangelical faith. They emphasize the reliability of Scripture. They emphasize the need for repentance, for uh, confessing our faith in Jesus Christ. Generally speaking, they accept that the Bible is inerrant that the original manuscripts, that their contents have been divinely preserved for it. But they emphasize a teaching of what they call the full gospel, or sometimes the four-square gospel. You might say, four-square, what does that mean? Well, they have four fundamental beliefs in Pentecostalism. One is Jesus saves, according to John 3.16. They believe that he baptizes in the Holy Spirit, according to Acts 2.4. They believe that he heals bodily, according to James 5.15, and they believe he's coming again to those who are saved. And we would certainly agree with the first one, the second one, and the fourth one. The third one, it would be a question of, okay, talk to me more about this healing bodily. But one of the central beliefs in classic Pentecostalism is that, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, sins are forgiven and humanity is reconciled with God. It's a fundamental requirement to be born again. You might say, oh, that sounds just like us, and that's true. And that's why we would acknowledge them as fellow believers, but we probably would not be able to go to one of their churches for an extended period of time. Pentecostal understanding of salvation, as I said, is generally very Arminian, meaning there's a heavy emphasis on man's free will. Baptists lean in the other direction of an emphasis on God's sovereignty. The eternal security of a believer is something that we hold as being very firm and established in the Bible. Our Pentecostal friends would disagree with that, as would our Methodist friends, I might add. For most Pentecostals, there is no other requirement to receive salvation. Baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues are generally not a requirement except in some of the more, I'm going to call them, fundamental Pentecostal denominations. Now, let's talk a little bit about this baptism of the Holy Spirit. They're talking about three different things. We recognize baptism in the sense of you come to a saving faith and you are baptized into the body of Christ. In that sense, the thief on the cross was baptized in the body of Christ because he repented and confessed 
that Jesus is Lord. Then there is water baptism. That's symbolic of dying to the world and living in Christ. Water baptism is this outward expression. I've even mentioned before, and years ago, Pastor Harwood brought a sermon about that there were seven different kinds of baptism. And I think they would acknowledge, Pentecostals would acknowledge those, but they have a particular emphasis on baptism of the Holy Spirit as being distinct from baptism into the body of Christ at the point that you tr first believe. So they have separated those two events, whereas we would say, no, they are one event. Now let's talk a little bit about this matter of divine healing and speaking in tongues. On the matter of tongues, in the uh, first century, one of the gifts that was given when the Holy Spirit first came in the book of Acts, after Jesus ascended, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they're speaking in different languages. And my understanding of that is that what this was, was it would be like this. If you were in a faraway land where there was a language that nobody knew, and you had no way to communicate with them, that the Holy Spirit gave the gift that when somebody would speak in their own language, the person that was listening heard it in their own language. It was a recognizable language. It wasn't gibberish. It wasn't something that nobody could understand. It was a miracle. And in that first century, we absolutely believe that that happened. But our understanding is that that gift ceased back then. And so we are called cessationists whereas our Pentecostal friends would be called continuists or continuationists. They believe that those gifts have been continued or restored because they believe we're in the last days. Another thing that uh, they talk about a lot is divine healing. It is a holistic faith. And so the faith healers that you would see on television, we have questions in our mind about how much of that is phony, but at the same time, the basis of it was that those faith healings, miracle healings that Jesus performed, and that that was a gift he gave to the apostles, they would tell you those gifts, yes, they were missing for many years, but they have been restored because we're in the very last days and the end times. Something we have in common with our Pentecostal friends is the issue of Jesus is coming soon, their understanding of the end times tends to go along with what many Baptists believe. They not, they not only believe that his coming is, is premillennial, but it is pre-tribulational. They do believe in that idea of a rapturing of the church, and then is the seven-year period of tribulation, and then the return of Christ at the end of that, the millennial kingdom, during which he deals with Israel separately from what he deals with the church. You notice that most of the... Um, Assemblies of God leaders, including some big names. Um, John Hagee, a big television preacher name, he's an Assembly of God pastor. And they have always had a very strong commitment to the modern-day state of Israel. Baptists typically have. Many of our friends who come from other denominations are not so sure. Those from the Reformed side of the equation, particularly the Christian Reformed Church and a number of the others, really have questions in their mind whether Israel of today is the same Israel as the Bible. And that's 
a separate debate, and perhaps I'll talk about that again, that's called covenantal theology. So as I said, Pentecostals believe that these gifts have been restored and that in some cases they are an indicator of someone being saved. They also have a disagreement within themselves. There's two camps. There are Trinitarian Pentecostals that believe as we do and as actually most Christianity does that God is one God with three distinct personages, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But some of those oneness Pentecostals view that, that our view is suggesting three gods, and therefore they don't accept the understanding of the Trinity. Their worship tends to be uh, very emotional. It tends to be very contemporary, very high-powered worship. And like Baptists, they view ordinances, not sacraments, in terms of baptism and Holy Communion. As I indicated, the, the largest Pentecostal denomination in the world, the Assemblies of God, are, as of 2018, had 69 million members worldwide. There are other Pentecostal denominations, including the, the Church of God. There are two Churches of God. One is a Church of God that is um, a Wesleyan movement church and centered in, um, centered in Anderson, Indiana. And then there's the Church of God that's Pentecostal. That's from Cleveland, Tennessee. Then there's the Foursquare churches, 90,000 churches with 8.8 .8 million members. So, like Baptists, they tend to come in a wide variety of ranges. They do appeal to people whose lives have been particularly hard. Life has been hard for them, that they were born into poverty, and they've worked and tried to get out of poverty, and they feel like the deck is stacked against them. That's why there is a strong appeal there to African Americans, but there's a strong appeal to rural America, too. And you'll see the melding of Baptist theology with elements of Pentecostalism, and you end up with this Baptocostal approach that particularly appeals to people who have just had a very hard life. And if they have the belief that God is speaking directly to them with some new divine revelation, I think that's the draw to it. We don't believe that that is actually happening, but I do recognize that there are people who are born-again believers who aren't as stuffy as we can sometimes be. And that's why I think we have to recognize that there will be certain things that you can disagree with our brothers and sisters on. It would make it tough for us to be in the same church with them here in this life, but we're going to be in the same eternity with them in the next life. And so I always say, be kind and be loving to our Pentecostal brothers and sisters, praying for them that They'll see where they may have some things wrong, and praying for us that we'll see where we might be missing some things too. That gives you just a very quick look at the Pentecostal and charismatic movement. Most of the boom of television preachers in the 80s, the Jimmy Swaggerts and the Jim Bakers and the Robert Tiltons and Benny Hinn today, and um, oh Kenneth Copeland and those guys, these are Pentecostal preachers. And yes, there's been controversy surrounding them. But obviously, that can happen in any denomination. The, the, 
scandals within the Catholic Church and the unfortunate scandals that have happened in way too many independent fundamental Baptist churches, particularly of moral failure. These kinds of things we have to recognize that we are all sinners, saved by the grace of God, and there are some honestly different understandings of exactly what the Bible teaches about how we live the Christian life. I think if we all just kept our eyes more on God and less on our own preferences, some of these things would be solved. But until he comes again, we're in this fallen world. Let us focus on the things that we have in common, those core doctrinal beliefs, including that Christ is the only way. And on the other matters, we'll simply have to disagree with our friends from those other denominations. Well, that's what I have for you tonight. I appreciate you listening. I appreciate you tuning in, as I always say. Next week is Easter Sunday. We will not have a Sunday night primetime podcast. Spend the time with your family in giving thanks, celebrating the resurrection of our Lord. Thank you for listening, and God bless you all. <music>